Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters podcast from GP Strategies, your talent transformation partner. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts and explore best practices and innovative insights to help your organization improve performance. Hello and welcome to the Performance Matters podcast. I'm your host, Michael Teal. By day, I'm the Director of Creative Services for the Innovation Research and Development Team, specializing in the North American automotive market. It's been a fun ride over the past 20 years working in the learning and development space. I have to say, one of the fun side hustles I have here at GP Strategies is having the honor and the opportunity to host the Performance Matters podcast. I do this out of my home office here in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and I get to speak with thought leaders all across the globe, all across the GP strategies, learning technologies group ecosystem, I guess would be the nerd term to call it these days. And it is a joy. I got a little call earlier this morning from our marketing team. Actually, it wasn't a call. It was a team's ping. And they said, Hey, Mike, um, we need to talk with you. And you know, you hear that and you're like, Oh, is my time as the podcast host up? And actually, to the contrary, they had mentioned that they had submitted the podcast for some consideration for some marketing communication awards this past month. And nice enough, they also submitted me as a podcast host and alerted me that I was nominated and awarded a gold medal as a podcast host according to the Marcom Awards. So when you're doing something, you hope there's some folks out there that are listening and like it. Yeah, that made my day. So. Thank you for listening and thank you for being there. So I appreciate that. Now, as for today's podcast, we have, as we say in the United States, a barn burner. This is a very juicy podcast. Today, we're going to talk about gamification 2.0 and how game-based learning strategies are leveling up the process. You know, someone, again, who has been in the creative world that thinks learning and development, this is a topic that I have circled on my calendar for quite some time. Now, I'm not alone here. We've brought in two thought leaders that are active practitioners in the learning experience space. I'm pleased to be joined by Rich Calcutt, Senior Learning Consultant for GP Strategies Learning Experience Team, and Emma Jordan, Learning Consultant for GP Strategies Learning Experience Team. How are you two doing today? Hey, Mike. Doing really well. Major congratulations on your award and your other nominations. That is very cool. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're doing really well. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. great to be on here. Awesome. I appreciate that. Okay, so, you know, one of the cool things about being in a virtual recording studio, which we are right now, is that we can cross time zones and we're kind of in a metaverse right here. I'm in Phoenix. I am eight hours behind UTC. So I'm just curious, where are you two residing at right now while we're having this conversation? Well, I'm normally based in London, but actually I'm trying out a bit of the digital nomad life at the moment. So I'm currently in Spain by the sea and I'm very pleased about that, to be honest with you. Ooh, wow. Okay. So how many hours are you compared to me then if I'm eight hours behind UTC? So I'm one hour ahead of the UK. So does that make me nine hours ahead of you? (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me and you're nearly wrapped up with the day here, right? So 
So we appreciate that. Rich, how about you? Where do you call home? I'm based in Sheffield. And that is significant at the moment for the fact that we're going through a bit of flooding here. We've had a big storm hit us and half of the city and surrounding area is flooded. But I'm safely up on the third floor of my house. So uh, (laughs) hopefully the flood waters won't affect me uh, in the podcast today. Okay, if we see you rush out real quick, we'll know what's up. Okay, I didn't know if you had tools and you're building an arc right now or what the situation is. But <laughs> I will say this, living in Arizona in a desert, we would gladly take some of that precipitation. Well, again, we thank you both for joining us today. This is definitely an interesting topic. I know you two are active practitioners in learning experience and gamification has to be something that you've circled as a point of focus and thought. So before we get going too far in this, Rich, I just wanted to ask you to just level set gamification. I mean, that's a word that's out there so much, but I don't know if people really wrap their arms around the nuts and bolts of it. So can you do that for us before we move Mm -hmm. into a 2.0? Like what's 1.0? So in the broadest sense, gamification is a descriptor for when you use the tools and techniques of game design to achieve something in another kind of design. So in a learning context, often what that is, is you have a design that uses things like points, badges, leaderboards, that sort of thing to achieve something. And most of the time in the context of what I'm calling now gamification 1.0, that's normally for the purpose of things like gaining people's interest and attention. But gamification doesn't exist just in the world of learning. It exists in many other forms and and many other areas of design. So learning is just one avenue for that. Got you. And I think we all can agree that the gaming industry is a multi-billion dollar Goliath. It's bigger than Hollywood out there. So I'm sure that's something that you've probably thought about of how to bring things Mm. over over the course of the years. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I've been designing games for a learning context for about the last 10 years at least. And there's been a lot of interest in how we can employ the systems and tools and techniques of game design into learning for much longer than that even. And what I've seen in those last 10 years is quite, I think, a significant shift from this gamification 1.0, as I call it, to a 2.0 sort of system where we've moved from and we've matured in the way that we bring games into learning because it's not so much anymore about just using things like points and badges, simple gamification tools to make things more interesting and put a kind of gloss over what is otherwise more traditional learning content. And what we've moved to is, I think, using gamification and game design techniques in a much more meaningful way. It's a way that is more inspired by real commercial games with an intention of generating specific knowledge or behavioral outcomes. Absolutely. And I think it's important to say 1.0 isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad way of doing gamification at all. It really can be very useful to say, let's take some simple game mechanics, let's take points or badges and put them as a layer over the top of something. And that can be a successful way of making it more interesting. But I think it's really true that we're able to be a bit more sophisticated than that. And we're actually able to look at a lot of different goals, more engagement, more attention, more interest might be one of them. But actually, we can look at the full range of learning outcomes and say, what can we learn from successful commercial games that we could apply to help us make those learning outcomes more effective, help embed them. So what's a shining example of what you consider to be a 2.0? Like 
What's a good example of the shift between 1.0 and 2.0 that you look at as a benchmark? Well, for me, I often look back at Duolingo. And the reason I love Duolingo, and if anybody doesn't know Duolingo, it's a language learning app. The reason I love it as a great example of Gamification 2.0 is the intentionality with which game design principles are used. So the thing with learning a language is that you have to do it on a regular basis. You have to immerse yourself in that language every day, practically, while you're learning it. And Duolingo uses gamification techniques to habitualize language learning. So everything that it does, whether it's using points and badges, whether it's giving you a bonus for logging in day after day, it counts up how many days in a row you've logged in and so on. All of that stuff is designed to make it really easy for people to come back and keep on learning on a regular basis. That's why I think it's so good. It's been used with a very clear intention to deliver a behavioral outcome. I really like Duolingo as an example of 2.0 as well, because the mechanics themselves aren't really any different. You know, they're not any more complicated. It is points. It is just something as simple as logging how many days in a row somebody has been using the app. But it's exactly as Rich says, it's the intention with which it's done completely changes the effect. Yeah, that is fascinating. When you see teenagers, for example, my daughter has been using it. Uh, she fancies studying abroad in Italy at some point. So she's been proactively using it, you know, to see those streaks going of, oh, I've been using it for X amount of days and everything. That is a, a great example out there in the commercial industry. So curious from your perspectives here, Rich, you said you've been in this for a decade now and how things have changed in a decade. It's stunning. If you just look back at 2013 and you think what type of technology you were using or how social media has changed. I'm curious from your perspective, looking at these past 10 years, Rich, how has this gaming landscape changed from the 1.0 to the 2.0? So let's kind of start there. And if you want to chime in on like, you know, what are the most up-to-date games and how has that kind of been shifting impact? I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. So if you want to put on the fire and just kind of reflect back here, we'd love that opportunity, Rich. Well, gaming has changed a lot. So if I just think about the broader gaming industry as a whole and just give a bit of commentary on that, I think especially the last five years, but certainly over a decade or more, a big shift has happened in how AAA studios monetize games. So before we go too far, define what a AAA studio is. What's that mean? A AAA game studio is one that's basically at the top end, the very, very top end is like the absolute Hollywood level A-list celebrities of the industry, right? So the studios that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars and selling tens of millions of units, the biggest end of the budget scale. Okay. And what they're doing with monetization now, so they're putting out games and they have a roadmap of how that game is going to be updated over time, how it's going to be kept live through live service updates, how they're going to keep players engaged in the long term and ultimately keep spending money on those games. And a lot of industry commentators are looking at that practice and looking at it with a level of disdain because a lot of people are saying, well, it's less now about making a fantastic game with a brilliant story and something that makes people want to keep coming back. But actually, the way that those big studios are keeping players coming back and spending money is through quite aggressive microtransaction tactics. <laughs> 
So can they get people to buy the new cosmetic skin for their character? Stuff like that. So it's small, repeated transactions, or can we get the player to buy the next piece of downloadable content because our game was launched only halfway finished and we want them to buy the rest of the product. And that's a somewhat uncharitable way of describing it, but it's kind of true. So those big games, those AAA game studios, it makes me want to look more towards the indie games, the single A studios who are doing much more interesting work. And that's where I get a lot of my inspiration from when I'm thinking about games in a learning context. Those studios seem to be run with much less of a focus on the monetization and aggressive microtransaction strategies. And they're producing absolutely incredible creative work that is really compelling and very inspiring for people like us. Yeah, so what's a good example of this? That sounds really interesting. I like the idea of it's more focused on, let's make something engaging, right? What's a highlight that people should put on their checklist? I think one of the ones that I would always jump straight to when talking about really interesting stuff smaller studios are doing that we can learn on would be the game Papers, Please. So it's just Mm. one of the best examples there is, I think, in turning something that has absolutely no right to be interesting into something really compelling (laughs) (laughs) because it's a game where you border guards checking people's immigration paperwork, which doesn't really sound like anything people would want to do for fun, but it's actually extraordinarily compelling. And that's because of the game mechanics. It's because of the writing. It's because everything you do in that game is meaningful and it contributes to the story that it's telling and the incentives that it's giving you and the way it's pulling things together. And it's very much a case study. And, you know, if you can make that interesting, you can make anything interesting. Interesting. And it really sort of pulls you into its world, I think. And it's something, a oh, game, I think, that well wouldn't played. exist without the kind of constraints that you get with an indie game. But it's the fact that all you do in that game is have your little desk where you're checking documents, and actually it's a better game for it. And I think that's something we can take a lot from as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, is that targeted for mobile or PC? What's the format for that one? It's available on both, although I think it does work particularly okay. well as a mobile game. It's a very good kind of small scale game. I think it's one of those games that people say you could run it on like a Casio calculator or something. Kind of like brilliant, like back to the Minecraft concept of what is that? bit (laughs) or single bit or something like that. That's kind of cool. Are there any others that YouTube might recommend folks check out? It's an absolutely amazing game that's just been released. Now this is going to get a little bit nerdy, but there's a game that's come out called Chance of Senar. Chance spelled C-H-A-N-T-S where you have to discover and learn a mysterious language as you play. So nothing is in English, it's all in this made-up language, and the player discovers it as they play through. And it's been the source of quite a lot of our discussion lately. You know, Emma and I were talking about it just earlier on, about a rise of a type of game called a knowledge-based game, where you make progress through learning. And that's an area that we're trying to explore right now. That's so fantastic on two levels. First of all, whenever I hear someone who's from the proper motherland speak, when you said chance, I was just like, oh, (laughs) I I feel so inadequate with my U.S. accent. So uh, I'll do my best to not break into my Kevin Costner Robin Hood accent here. As I would say in the U.S., chance (laughs) sounds so terrible. Chance of Senna, is that right? Yeah, well, I think it was made by a French studio. So, you know, they'd say it differently again. 
Sean's this and or something. Yeah, like that. exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, you're hitting on something great though, and that's gamification techniques. So that's a knowledge based type game, right? So curious from your both of your perspectives here, techniques uh, that you think aren't used enough in a learning context. So let's start with that. Like, what things are being underutilized out there? I think one of the most interesting ones, and again, something we've been talking about a lot is failure as a game mechanic because commercial games often failure is a really important part of the experience you're supposed to be feeling like you're mastering something and in order to feel like that you have to be able to get it wrong at first and actually a lot of the games we've been talking about allowing you to get something wrong is a big part of what makes them compelling because things go badly at first you try something else you get to experiment you get to fail in that safe environment try something different and eventually you feel empowered by the experience of learning it and also that repetition of trying different things really helps it sink in but learning games previously i would say have been very nervous about letting people fail it can be a bit mm. of a hard sell right to say somebody might have to play this game two or three times before they actually are able to master it, are able to get that sort of equivalent of the passing score and it ticks off nicely in the learning management system and everyone's happy. But I think people are getting a little <laughs> bit more confident with that now because people can see how powerful it can be. I can also see that it's unlocking your childlike element. You know, when you're a child, you're not sitting there going, oh, if I don't do it one time, I'm a failure. You try something, you experiment, you just keep going there. So that's the brilliant mechanic, no doubt on that end. So I'm also curious from your end, what type of things you think have been, I guess to say charitably, overused like from a game mechanic? What things are you like, okay, my eyes are rolling when this is what they're calling gamification. Curious on that end. For me, it's points, but in a very particular sense of when a, when a player scores points for answering questions and the points really only serve to just be a tally of how many questions they've answered correctly. I think the points in any game have to mean something, whether it's something that the player can then use their points to buy later on, you know, so if I score mm. 10 points, maybe I can spend those 10 points in some fashion to make my game better later on. But there has to be a context for it. If I'm answering questions in a quiz and I'm getting some points and they're just called points and I get 100 every time, it really means nothing to me. And also in that category would be badges. I think that badges can have their place. But again, if I get a badge in a game for just doing something that I have to do anyway, like finishing the quiz, that really doesn't mean a lot to me. A badge is supposed to be something that I, it shows that I've done something unique and it shows that I've done something impressive. Maybe you could get away with if I finish the quiz with 100%, you know, and it's a really tough quiz, then maybe that badge is okay. But it's points and badges. And before I hand it back over, if I could just pick up on what Emma said about failure. I sure. totally, totally agree with everything you said. Failure is like one of the most powerful learning tools that we have. And what we can do to enable the use of failure in learning games is make it really easy to start playing again. So... If I've been playing a game for a few minutes and then I get to a point at which I've failed, how can we design that game in an intelligent way so that the player finds it really easy to pick back up and use what they've learned through failure to benefit mm. them again? You know what? You're reminding me of one of my favorite movies that didn't make it huge, but it is really cool. It's I think it was The Day After Tomorrow with Emily 
Emily Blunt, yeah. Tom Cruise, remember that? Yes. What you're saying is I feel like that was the deal, right? Is, you know, for those that haven't seen it, totally check it out. There's not a commission from us on that. But <laughs> the point is, you know, Tom Cruise, his character has been gifted powers where he can continue to, you know, he gets killed and the next day he snaps back and he gets better and better and better, right? So that's kind yeah, of that. The, uh, I think the creative pitch for that movie was Groundhog Day with Tom Cruise, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a few more guns. You're right. And guns. Yes. <laughs> Yes, let's add some guns and Emily Blunt. I mean, that, that's yeah. a winner any day, right? And let's face it. Okay, so, but what's like a real world example of that that you like? So, I mean, that same concept, but it's brought up. So give us an example that people could actually check out. Well, there's actually a whole genre of games that kind of makes that its speciality. And, and there's so many of them. So, I mean, there was one I played recently called Loop Hero, which made a real thing of that, where the whole concept of the game is you're just going round and round the same loop. You can never leave it. But as you fail and as things go wrong, you basically see how far you can get and how many times you can get round. And as you fail, not only do you kind of get to know techniques, not only does your mastery improve, but actually with what Rich was saying about points, you can earn points or currency, which you can spend on things that make you more powerful. And so you've always got a motivation to go back in. And it's also designed, I think this is quite an important part of it as well, so that each attempt only takes a very, very short amount of time, you know, 10 minutes max, probably quite a lot less. And I think that also really helps motivate you to think, oh, I'm just going to go in for one more turn. But yeah, I think there's a whole range of games that ah. do that really well in that genre. So as practitioners, have you had a chance to apply this yet? I mean, this is that perfect idea of here's some insight and then action. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, very recently, I made a game for a client where the player has to manage a set of restaurants and they have to effectively, it's a management simulation type of game. They've got to choose the best recommendations to make for each type of restaurant. They have to look at data and they have to make good decisions about how to engage with the stakeholders and what that restaurant should change to become more profitable. But the tricky thing is that even with your best intentions in that game, sometimes a stakeholder might not like your suggestion. And sometimes you might hmm. lose track of one of those restaurants and it might go out of business. And <laughs> well, it's actually a really tough game. It's designed to be really challenging. And it's designed in mind that a player is likely to fail the first time or even the second time they play through. But our client really liked that because they were saying, you know what, this job that we're emulating in this game is really tough. And if we can show people before they start this job how tough it is, they'll get an idea that, you know what, I really need to look after these stakeholders and I really need to keep my eye on this and this and this. So I think there's a real virtue in having games be difficult, allowing people to fail and showing them in that safe environment, mm. which is why we love games, because they're a safe place to fail. All the different things that they need to gain that mastery <laughs> of. What that kind of game lets you do as well is you can make something much more realistic because for that kind of audience with the decisions they're going to be making, these aren't neat closed problems with one solution where you just have to get the right answer. They're very open-ended problems. And a big part of that kind of job is having the creativity oh. and the kind of ability to think outside the box to be able to solve those. And that kind of game can actually model that. And, and that game does model that. There's often more than one solution to a problem. Mm. There's more than one way to approach something. And encouraging people to try a game more than once and to be able to fail and learn from it also lets you do that. What you two are describing is if someone contrasts that to just typical onboarding of here's a PowerPoint deck and take this quiz, 
you're talking about a next level learning experience right there. I can just see that, you know, thinking about the whole Bloom's taxonomy and you're moving people up into analysis and synthesis and reflection and all that. You're firing at that higher level through gamification. That is so, so exciting there. Just everything you're saying about leveraging failure as a game mechanic and embracing it versus trying to pander and say, okay, get one chance. Here's a multiple choice question. You get one chance and you know, lob them the easy answer. It's so awesome on that. These are really exciting things that you're talking about in terms of how we're leveling up. Rich, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, it's one thing to have great ideas and be excited and inspired by different games that are out there in the consumer industry. But walk us through the process of actually making that pivot from inspiration to putting it into real world practice for our clients. It's really easy to love a game and say, oh, I want to make the Mario of compliance learning or something <laughs> like that, right? Or, you know, I want to make the Grand Theft Auto of cybersecurity. <laughs> but the fact is a lot of people, when they think about games, they think about big, those AAA types of games, games that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make. And to be inspired by that is brilliant, but then bringing it down and making it practical for a learning intervention is really tough. And that's why we've been involved in making a design model that helps us bring these things to life. And most importantly, when a client makes an investment into a game for learning, it helps us to hit the bullseye of what that game should be and how it should work the first time. We've just been talking about the power of failure, but failure is one of 24 different criteria that we apply to a game design when we start working that process through with a client. And this model that we have is the culmination of five years of work of designing games at a really high end with our clients and many, many different types of clients, many types of learning interventions. We haven't seen it all, but we've seen quite a lot of it. And our model covers things like, for example, how much are we teaching versus testing in the game how mm. many decisions so how frequently does the player have to make a decision and then how complex are those decisions and just to give an example of those things or an, i guess a description of it if you say okay in this game we want players to be making decisions really often all the time and also those decisions are going to be really complex and they're going to require a lot of analysis well, you have to know as a game designer and a learning designer that that combination of things is going to tire people out really quickly. People are going to get fatigued mm. by, by making highly complex decisions very frequently. So you've got to adapt other parts of the game, for example, to account for that. So you might change the way uh, other parts of the model work. So for example, we might change how much story is involved, how much humor is involved, how linear or non-linear, how much strategy or how much randomness and humor and reward. All of these things hmm. that I'm describing are all different parts of the game design model. And the thing that I love about it is each game we design is different. So we dial all these things up to 10 sometimes, or we dial them back to one, depending on what the client wants to achieve and how players want to interact with the game and what that game needs to teach. That's so awesome. And full disclosure for those that are listening here on the podcast, and we thank you for doing that, by the way, like subscribe, follow. But I see a picture of your model here 
And it is incredibly impressive to think that you're thinking about these 24 points and specifically not just we've got to do this, but how does that lever affect, you know, like you said, somebody's brain is just, it's out of glucose, right? You've, you've tired the brain down. So you yeah. better have a parachute come down with a resource or a bit of comedy or something uh, exactly. levity to just, you know, recharge them or let them coast for a little bit versus just uh, feel like you're in a, a graduate test or something. So yeah. that is just awesome. And yet another reason why clients should consider GP strategies, by the way, had to sneak in a little bit of marketing promo there. This is amazing that we have models within the GP learning experience team. I'm curious for our client side, if they want to start dipping their toes or more further advancing their efforts and their initiatives in the gamification world. Emma, what's a great entry point? What are some examples that you're seeing that can just help people advance into the 2.0 world? So I guess the interesting thing about gamification 2.0 is because the underlying concept is to design something that uses game mechanics to achieve learning outcomes and to change behavior, that could be anything. And there's a huge range of what that could mean. So in terms of the entry level, what we'd often look at is what can we do with a kind of conventional e-learning authoring tool that really feels like a game and feels genuinely effective in the way it uses game mechanics and narrative in terms of the model that we were talking about and all the different pillars we have some of those lend themselves much better than others to authoring tool games so story narrative making meaningful choices seeing the consequences of those choices all work really well for that whereas maybe something like kind of more heavily randomized very short replay game like we also talked about earlier might suit that less well so that's what we would probably start with and there's a really great one we did recently which involved the learner basically needing to learn about the kind of choices you might need to make in a very unfamiliar environment needing to make decisions about public health needing to win the approval and the kind of buy-in of a lot of different people who might have different motivations might be very unsure of your motives and what you're doing and it's a narrative driven game but it involves sort of traveling around a map meeting different people making choices it feels very immersive and that's all built in a standard e-learning authoring tool in exactly the same technology we'd use for a normal course but i think it feels very very different from conventional e-learning because of the game mechanics that are used Absolutely. It sounds like you're making an effort to make something interesting and thoughtful, which is very exciting on that end. And like you said, you're taking something basic, but then adding just the power of story and game to level that up. Rich, I'm curious on your side, let's say if somebody had a little more budget on that end, what would you do if somebody came and said, okay, I have a little more time, a little more budget, what would be some additional levers that you might pull? Well, I think there is kind of no ceiling really when it comes to game design and learning. So if a client came to me and said, yeah, they've got all the time, money in the world, I mean, that actually is quite a difficult prospect, you know, because the, the, uh, the expectations <laughs> are so high, right? But you can kind of go and be as ambitious as you want to be with designing games for learning. I think it comes down to what behaviors you're trying to change, what knowledge you're trying to convey and the outcomes you're looking for. And you can do that on a small scale. You know, it may well be possible to do the thing you want to do on a modest scale. But sometimes I think when you apply more money to something, 
especially in games, just the more time it gives you to polish the experience and make it incredibly mm -hmm. friendly. So I'm not just talking about things like making the graphics more high definition and so on, but it enables you to just make it really perfect. Every interaction in the game is just working absolutely flawlessly and buttery smooth, and it feels great to interact with the game. It gives you that time for polish. The last phase of game design is always what we call the polish sprint, and that is doing stuff like that. You know, it's making the animations really crisp, making the sound sound amazing. I can't mm. emphasize enough the importance of things like having a good soundtrack in a game, not just music, but if you're in a one of the kind of games that Emma mentioned a second ago, you know, a narrative heavy game, and it puts you in an environment in that story, well, spend some time and some money making the sound design, make it really feel like you're in that story and you're in that environment, whatever it is. Rich, so question for you is, have you ever had an instance where a client has come to you with heightened expectations and perhaps a heightened budget? And if so, what would be the way that you've responded or would respond to that? Yes, definitely. So the flagship game project that we've worked on recently, it's in the public domain, so I can share this one. It's called How Not to Suck at Money for Invesco QQQ. <laughs> so the client came to us with a really interesting problem. I guess a, a brief like I've never really had before, which is how can we educate ideally every college student in America about the basics of financial literacy. And we want to do it in a game, right? So expectations, ambition is huge because we have to reach this audience who themselves have really high expectations and who play games all the time, who speak the language of games, they speak the language of social media and youth culture, how can we reach those people with a learning game? And how can we convey this topic that doesn't get enough attention in school and is going to be such a powerful thing if people can take this learning and apply it into their everyday life. So we made a game and I hope that people will go and check this out because I think it not only does it look awesome, because we had the opportunity to work with a really well-known artist to produce the all the art for the game. Cool. Um, teaches some really important fundamental financial literacy lessons. So if anyone needs to go back to school about how to make a budget, how to manage their credit card, how to start investing, then this is the place for you to go. And in that situation, you know, how do we tackle it? Well, we go back to our game design model. We start from the ground up there. What kind of experience does this need to be? We think about all those different 24 levers that we can pull and make the game feel differently. And then we build it out from there. And that is definitely our flagship example of a project where we had mega high expectations, mega high ambitions to do something awesome. And I like to think that we absolutely pulled it off. The proof is in the fact that we launched with a billboard in Times Square and we wow. had the project discussed on morning TV news in America and it, uh, it, it's been a huge success. I have a daughter heading off to college next year. I've immediately written that down as something to have her check out there. So I cannot wait to see some of this amazing GP learning experience, public work there. So that's a good example of when you have a bigger opportunity, a, a bigger scope, a bigger budget, but you're still going back to the model and saying, fundamentally, what do we need to achieve? What are the levers? So I, I love that rigor 
on that end. So now speaking of rigor, I know something of increasing importance and rightly so in our world is a greater focus on accessibility. So I'm curious on your end, what's the GP learning experience approach when it comes to accessible game design? Well, I think we've just been talking about how in gamification 2.0, gamification is not a layer that you sort of paste over the top of an existing designed course. Game design is part of learning design. It's fundamental. And in exactly the same way, I'd say good accessibility design is part of game design and part of learning design. You do it from the beginning and, and you think about it and you make it integral. People sometimes think there's something inherently not accessible about games or they can't be accessible. They absolutely can. We can make games as accessible okay. and as inclusive as we need to, but it's something we would customize for the needs of the project and the audience and something we would think about. There's a huge amount of variety in what it might mean because every game is so different. So there are certain things that we tend to do as standard. We think about what size is the text. We think about a color contrast, alt tags for images, you know, a lot of the, the conventional things that we would do for any sort of okay. uh, web design. But because games can have a lot more variety, there's a lot more that might be relevant. So for example, I'm dyspraxic. So a lot of games that rely on fine motor skills, hand-eye coordination, spatial awareness, are pretty much impossible for me to play. Some of them have additional accessibility features that mean I can play them. So there's as many different forms of accessibility mm. in game design as there are different kinds of games and different kinds of accessibility needs. Yeah, and I would only echo exactly what Emma said there, that games absolutely can be accessible. And to do that, we design it from the start. So it's an integral part of the project. And when we analyze who's going to be playing these games, we have a really solid understanding of what they might need to be able to get the best experience. That's very cool. As you said, this is not a layer. This is something that you're looking at from the beginning. And since you are working custom, you can work with your clients and go, Okay, what are some of the specific nuances we need to maybe perhaps cater to? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I'm curious from your ends here, let's look to the future. If you have your crystal ball out and you said, you know, I'm making some predictions, what are some of the future elements? I don't know if it's like gamification 3.0, but what's on the landscape here? So curious for you to feedback on that one. Well, I'll kick off with the obvious one, which is AI. What is AI? <laughs> it's a magical thing that makes games automatically. You just tell it what kind of game you want to make and it will make you a game. Uh, oh, no. perfect. Yes. Send uh, me the link to that one. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that AI is going to get to that place anytime soon. But the really interesting AI thing, I think, in games is going to be AI-driven characters. So when we make narrative games, which is quite often where the player has lots of choice about what they're going to say and how characters will reply to them, the scripts we end up making are hundreds and hundreds of pages long. And we, mm. we spent a long, long time crafting perfect dialogue for every possible situation. Now, if AI can do some of that heavy lifting for us and can get to a place where a player can say something to a character that isn't even pre-scripted by us, they can say exactly Ooh. what they want to say, and the character can respond intelligently to that, picking up on not just what they're saying, but how they're saying it, the tone of voice, and that's sort of thing then that is such a powerful thing for us so that's definitely coming soon if not already in the commercial game space wow i like that because you're right when you think about writing branching scenarios and you're trying to 
you know, scheme for every possible thing. I mean, it's like creating a landmine field, right? You're never going to get them all right there. But if you could have the nuance, that sounds like a holy grail type opportunity to have AI maybe come in and, and potentially make some of these fluid in movement type elements there. So that's very cool. Emma, what, what else is out there that you're thinking? Yeah, Sorry, I, mean, I stepped on you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I was just chiming in on AI. I think it's exactly okay. that, right? That's okay. why it's most exciting. It's the heavy lifting. It, it's not writing your stories for you necessarily because you still have that human creativity, but it's how can it expand what we're able to do? And obviously, GP has that broad AI strategy where we want to look at it in a way that's ethical and thoughtful and trying to use it in the most productive and most valuable ways that we can. And I think it's obviously something that's developing very fast. So it's going to be exciting to keep an eye on. In terms of other things, I mean, it's an ever evolving space. So AI is one of the ones that's really interesting for learning games because it has the potential to be used at a lot of different scales. So for example, one of the other big things in gaming and technology generally has been virtual reality, right? That's been a buzzword for a long time. And it's something mm -hmm. we have used and can be really exciting. But clearly that does tend to fall on the bigger budget end of the spectrum. In terms of use cases, you know, I think AI is going to be really interesting because it's so varied in how it's going to be able to be used and what scale of project it might suit. And something that the commercial game space has been doing forever that hasn't really translated into learning games at all yet is massive multiplayer games where mm. you have tens, hundreds, thousands of people playing the game either synchronously, so at exactly the same time, or asynchronously, where it's displaced across time. I think there's so much power in that because it gives you the ability for players to compete with each other, but also collaborate with each other, working together to solve big problems. There's something so interesting in that. And it's something that's quite rarely seen in a learning context from my experience. And if you think how big a trend social learning has been in the kind of digital learning world for a long time now, combining that with games, I think, has the potential to be really powerful. And there's been a lot of kind of interesting experiments in the commercial gaming world with ways of doing that that maybe have lower overheads or have different approaches to them, even things like combining a game with social media and encouraging people to use that in conjunction with the game. So I think there's a lot of very exciting things happening with that. Sounds like there's a lot of cool things in the coming years or months that are coming up there might even be uh the ability to make custom like fortnite like dances when you've collaborated to help create an organizational strategy perhaps <laughs> well yeah and of course when you look at something like roblox or some of the things that are happening maybe we'll be getting our users to make their own games and that will be how they learn so the possibilities are endless really well i'm glad that we have outstanding thought leaders and practitioners like the both of you on the GP team, it makes me continuously humbled to see the level of thought leadership, whether it's in the consulting world, the learning design, or on any of the other fronts, the technology platforms that are here. It's just my mind is continuously blown by the amazing people here at GP. So on behalf of the entire organization, our listening audience, I want to thank you two for sharing so many cool thoughts and perspectives on gamification today so thank you so much we appreciate you both yeah thank you for having us mike it's always a pleasure and thank you for being such a great host asking such insightful questions and if anybody out there listening would like to find out more about games gamification how we use our model to design games then please get in touch 
Absolutely, it's been great. And I mean, an honor for us to be hosted by an award-winning podcast host. So, Oh, okay. Where do I send the money to? I appreciate <laughs> that. But no, seriously, we appreciate you. Hopefully we can have you back on here within the next couple of months. We'd love to hear more about how things are going on the GP learning experience side. The Performance Matters podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts or listen on our website at gpstrategies.com.